Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. The best investors don't just invest when the market's bullish. Rather, they make money all through the cycle. And that's what today's episode is all about. The guest is John Ayoub, Portfolio Manager at Wilson Asset Management. In another life, John worked as a corporate lawyer before jumping ship to the world of investment finance with roles at Audemars A and Credit Suisse. In 2016, John joined Wilson Asset Management as a portfolio manager for the WAM Leaders Fund, ticket code WLE. WAM Leaders is a large cap fund that adopts a top-down and bottom-up process, providing investors with capital return and income. In today's episode, we discuss the global banking crisis and how it affects the Australian market, the way WAM use macro, micro and catalyst to find their winners, And we also touch on what defensive quality means and why it's the play in today's market. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. John. Welcome to the Rules of Investing. Thank you. Okay, massive few weeks in markets, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic, uh, then add Credit Suisse to the mix. Um, against that backdrop, how would you rate the health of equity markets at the yeah, moment? The rules of the game are changing. It's Every day is a new battle. Um, equity markets so far have been fairly resilient. Um, that's not to say that we're through the worst of it. I think we're in the eye of the storm. Information is happening really quickly. Uh, I don't expect um, last night or this week's events to be the end or a resolution to anything. Day-to-day gyrations will probably dictate um, what's next, but what you typically see in these kind of events is liquidity sought first, deleveraging from various pockets of the market, being hedge funds, CTAs, or whatever it might be. They just drop down your risk levels. So your tolerances gets pulled back straight away. Um, and then from there, you're just going to see how the dust settles. For us, the way that we handle it is we look at it, look at it as an opportunity. Uh, it's a typically a good time to high grade your portfolio. And by that, we, you know, through time, you typically accumulate positions that you're not 100% convinced with in a, in a portfolio. Um, but where there's dislocation and volatility, everything gets sold off at the same time. So for us, we use that as a, as, as a prudent point to cleanse the portfolio of sorts to buy best in class within each sector um, and to ride out that volatility. Because what we do know is in time, things do get better. Um, but in the short term, you need to be more tactical. Uh, we like to be nimble and that's what we are. Uh, we like to be active within the portfolio. So it's a day-to-day proposition and until we get more information, um, you got to be nimble. You touched on the resilience of equity markets. Is that a double-edged sword? It seems moral hazard has really reached the stratosphere now. You know, when there was the GFC, central banks got together and said, you know, no more, no more bailouts. Um, and to the chagrin of the ECB, the, the Fed went and did another one of its putts. Um, do you think equity markets now assume, based on all of that, that there's a flaw under risk assets? The thing that I'm focusing on and we're focusing on WAM leaders is how do you price risk going forward? The behavior of um, Silicon Valley Bank, 
and some other participants in the market, given there's a backstop now, effectively, so no matter what you do, people are going to be backstopped. Does that change the way that you perceive risk or price risks? Does that change the way that management teams behave, knowing that they can actually take these egregious positions uh, and not have a consequence? So your underlying partner or client being, in this instance, the depositors, there's no risk. So does this incentivize different behavior going forward? That's the moral hazard that we're kind of trying to work out. What we're seeing, we we kind of think is today's a crisis of confidence in the world as opposed to a liquidity issue, which perhaps may change as we kind of get the fullness of time. But right now it's a crisis of confidence. And what we're seeing is central banks and, who are, which, and other participants trying to prop up that confidence. Uh, it's working at this, at this point. Um, it's working, but hopefully, yeah, hopefully it stays that way. But to your point, equity markets haven't really had a need to take a step back. And you kind of see small, yeah, January was a really resilient month, went up six or 7%. February pulled back a little bit. And this month hasn't been too bad given what we're seeing. The things you point out typically are bigger than the GFC. And we should have seen, <laughs> yeah, a more marked move down in markets. Um, but the forward curve and the fixation with rates and you know, everyone's become a macro expert over the last six months, you know, kind of means people gravitate back to equities because they think there is no actual alternative. Like we started to get into a world where we think, well, bonds are offering you somewhere between 4.5%, 5%. Yeah, maybe we see start seeing outflows of equities. That hasn't happened yet. Um, so I think as asset allocators start to weigh this up and see where, you know, see where rates settle and what central banks do, that's probably the next iteration um, around equity market valuations. You know, you're probably starting to see retail people, uh, the retail world, st- the confidence starting to peter off a little bit. Um, that could have ramifications uh, as headlines become more and more negative around Credit Suisse and other things. And people, one thing we do know, they get scared around their, their own money. You touch the money in their bank and yeah, we, we, have, we have serious issues. So central banks are trying to kind of shore up confidence uh, headlines aren't great for reading. Um, at the moment, there's probably no alternative other than equities. But I think the fullness of time, I think, yeah, we're probably just starting this journey. You're seeing a structural shift uh, in the banking sector. One of the major stories to come out of the SVB uh, saga is the industry's share of deposits, uh, namely, you know, do depositors move their money from the regional smaller banks? Um to the majors. As an investor in at least some of the Aussie major banks, do you see that kind of dynamic playing out here? It's clear bigger is better. Um, you saw City and Bank of America and Wells Fargo get material inflows. Australia is a bit separate from that because we have a concentration of four banks. The smaller players really are more regional. Um, yeah, they probably do consolidate. We've already seen ANZ take over Suncorp or attempting to take over Suncorp's bank. There has been constant chatter about Bendigo and BOQ getting back together. Uh, I think the real losers are probably some of these challenger neobanks. Um, I think they're going to struggle in this, in this environment to win deposit share. Uh, Macquarie has been agitating, has been winning share on, on the back, back of deposit uh, rates, and there has been a fairly aggressive stance from Macquarie and even ANZ to some extent around trying to, around deposits. But given the structure of Australia with the four majors uh, and probably, you know, call Macquarie the mini major when it comes to banking, um, I can't see much changing in the way it happens here, but globally, certainly, especially with Credit Suisse, who you know, you've got Credit Suisse and UBS, um, as the doyens of the, the, the Swiss 
the Swiss uh, banking institution, um, that's a significant step change. Uh, and the amount of money that UBS will have under deposit or control is astronomic now. Um, I don't know how the regulators are going to handle that one. Um, good luck to them. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be touching either of those stocks, or especially credit switch has gone. But UBS, it's it's just a it's a myriad of um, spider webs, we'll call it, and they just got to try to navigate through that and make it survive. So, John, I have to ask you. You used to work for Credit Suisse uh, for half a decade or so. Um, has this come as any surprise to you? Um, did you and did you see cracks starting to appear? When you were still there yourself, I think if you ask anyone who's worked at Credit Suisse, it's a death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> um, yeah, there's been constant talk about the two Swiss giants getting together, and there's a history of yeah, Swiss banks getting back together, SBC, Warburg, Pincus, and all those kind of things. Where today, where the the resolution today was something that everyone thought would happen, but not at these prices, not at you know, 75 cents Swiss franc. No one ever thought that would eventuate. And you never really thought Credit Suisse would blow up. They were always, you know, I think you know, you'd get given shares and the happiest day you'd get given the shares as a part of your bonus was the day you sold them. Um, it, and, it, and it's been a battle and I, and I, I sympathize with a lot of the staff there because there's a lot of great people, especially here in Australia. Uh, and what happens next is going to leave these people in a lot of uncertainty, uh, and globally, they're a massive employer, and they they have a very big presence in investment banking, and that's where we focus. And not not alone the wealth management business, which has been one of the, the best for a long, long time. So they, they get, there's going to be a big hole left. Um, to see to say I saw it coming, no, like I didn't think it'd be where it is today, but uh, shrinking to greatness under some of the leadership that they've had over the last few years. Yeah, I think the um, I think the last couple of CEOs have kind of let let down generations of uh, generations of a great bank. Don't dissipate into what it is today, to rubble. Speaking of holes, um, you know, vacuums aren't vacuums for very long. And I guess the irony is that this situation does present some opportunities. How do you see that hole being filled? Yeah. The world's become, I think the world shifted away from that legacy of having those secret Swiss bank accounts. And I know I'm not to say that's what they were doing, but uh, you probably see the emergence and the continuing strength of the US bank. If you look at the position that a Goldman Sachs, a JP Morgan, or a Morgan Stanley are globally, they are the dominant forces when it comes to investment banking. Um, and I think that gap to anyone else is going to grow and grow and grow. And I'm talking about a global context, not just in Australia. You know, obviously, there's some strong players in Australia. Um, but I think from a global perspective, that dominance will grow. And I think they already account for like 70 or 80% of, of market share. And I think that's just going to accelerate. So... Uh, if you're kind of crystal balling it, maybe some emergence out of Asia, um, given what we're seeing out of China and then trying to take that forefront of uh, global global political leadership, you probably want to see some banking systems start to emerge more out of Asia and, and, and shift away from that um, concentration that we're seeing in the US. Stepping back from the, the global macro landscape, what are the biggest top-down risks for the Aussie market at the moment? Politics is probably the one I'll call out the most. Um, Go on. I think uh, profitability is becoming a political topic. And at every post, if you can kind of get on your Twitter feed, you'll see Sally Manis kind of questioning uh, Woolies and Wes Farmers and the big banks around what they're making, even energy companies. You're seeing Jim Chalmers coming and raiding your super. You're seeing uh, Dominic Perrottet and uh, Matt Keane going after casinos. What certainty you previously had around a contractual agreement or a structure in place is no longer sacrosanct. They can change it at a whim. 
So if energy companies are making super profits, then there could be a super tax on it. Um, yeah, there could be a deposit tax on CBA tomorrow if the government deems that they're making too much money. So you got to, that's a curveball that you never really anticipated that you'd have to deal with in Australia. So sovereign risk is something you never thought about. It's now emerging as a real issue. Um, and I think the politics of populism is there to stay. You look at what Biden's doing in the US around the billionaire's tax. You look at the, the backstopping of deposits. Um, you name it, it's all done for populism. Now I'm not advocating politics one way or another, but it's just something you need to be conscious of when you're investing. Um, you know, China's role in peacekeeping with Ukraine and what they're, what they're trying to do everywhere. So you need to be conscious that the global landscape is shifting day to day and bring that back to a local level. Um, you know, I think you can't make too much and you can't make enough. It's kind of one of those things where you need it's the Goldilocks when it comes to investing, otherwise you become a target. In Australia, which sectors in particular have become those, those political cudgels? Um, and how at WAM um, do, you, do you hedge that risk, that, yeah. that political risk? First and foremost, energy's, energy was the target late last year. And then it's the energy providers and the energy retailers. Uh, we avoided that sector for some time. And then when valuations get too cheap, because ultimately that's what it comes back down to. You've you got to price this risk. And I think that's how we play it. So our process kind of, yeah, it's a top down, bottom up. And we'll come to that a little bit later. But the thing is you need to put more of these risks in your in your funnel and what valuation comes out the other side will be dictated because of every single input that you put into that funnel. So the energy space, so AGL and Origin first and foremost, I think the next one we've got to be conscious of around the banks. Um, I think there is a real, real serious issue around um, taxing the bank on super profits. Now what form, shape or whatever it may be, we're not quite sure yet, but we're just being wary of that. Now, is it just a levy um, to kind of ride through the roller coaster? Um, does it disappear now that the forward curve is saying that rate, hi rate hikes are done and rate cuts are coming? Um, it's a it's a day to day thing, but we're just conscious that those are probably anything that's at the front of the on the front page of the press. If someone's making too much money, be it Woolies or Coles, um, they could be targets, and you just got to factor that in. So, how do you factor that in? If there's anything that's hard to predict, it's what politicians are going to do yeah. a week from now, yeah. let alone six months from now, a year from now, three years from now. Um, so how do you approach that? Do you just do you just stay out of these sectors or do you just, you know, take underweight positions? How do you manage it? Some things you can predict, other things that you just have to cop. So let's take the casino tax that that the state government put on Star. That was unpredictable. That was a 40-year agreement that the Parate government put in. And then they decided one night with a stroke of a pen that they're going to change it all. That you, that's a that's a that's a black swan event. Let's call it. Um, now, when the market prices it the way it did, it has today where you've imputed a hundred percent of the earnings downgrade into the share price. Well, the way that you value it is well, there's probably only upside risk now. You have the valuation support, you have the asset backing, uh, and if there is a watering down because of uh, negotiation uh, around jobs or whatever lever that star may have, then you know there's an upside story to that. So from that standpoint, we're happy to own it, knowing that all that risk is priced in. So with those unforeseen events, are you telling me you, you cop it yeah. and then you maybe down. accumulate? We double down. Yeah, right. So we double down. So sometimes where the underlying fundamentals, so the land value and the, the license value, um, 
hasn't changed in this instance, it hasn't, uh, you sometimes double down. Other times where, you know, let's take the banking sector, for example, you know, we're not, we're not new to the banking sector, but we're underweight. And we're underweight for some time because you saw in the last CBA result that they've called peak NIM and a bunch of other little things along the line. When it's trading $111, you know that the risk reward is to the downside. Then you start seeing what the government's talking about around super taxes and all sorts of other stuff. Then you go, right, from that perspective, no risk is priced into that. You've got peak earnings. So then from that, you, you get more confidence in taking a much larger underweight, which we did. Um, and every day is a different proposition. And <clears throat> excuse me, as uh, share prices fall, you can adjust the weightings. And that's kind of the way that we approach it. It's just every day we ask ourselves the question, if we didn't own this stock today, what weighting would it be? And if it's where it is, great. If it's higher, we go higher. If it's lower, we go lower. And that's being active and nimble and taking a pragmatic approach to portfolio construction. That's fascinating. Okay, so let's dig down a bit deeper on your investment approach and style. Um, you've touched a little bit there on on what you do when these black swan events arise. Um, Wham, um, you know, you have three... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you have the macro, the fundamentals, and the catalyst. Mm. Um, how do those three things come together and for you to be able to arrive at, at a place where you can invest or sell? So I'll talk about WAM leaders because it's the product that uh, I work on with Matt Helped at Anna Milne. Uh, our processes evolved. So Matt and I started the fund nearly seven years ago now. Uh, and the process for us was it starts with a top-down approach and we focus on macro factors first and foremost because we, we we figure the Australian market is more macro-driven than anything else. You look at the major, major participants in our market, banks and resources, and then everything else is probably USD play, a defensive, a, a growth industrial, or a startup tech. That's kind of the composition. Um, and for us, what we try to identify um, are sectors that have tailwinds and that's driven from our macro process, which is, as I said earlier, it's just a big funnel. And what we do is we check these, we check the inputs daily and what we try to identify are headwinds and tailwinds, not only for the equity markets, but for each sector and each stock. And that then leads us to finding and hunting around stocks that have those tailwinds and they typically drive the portfolio. Um, you know, you go from macro to sector and that will be what well, we want to be overweight that sector. If there isn't the individual stock uh, that we think uh, is going to excel within that sector, we'll buy a basket of those names and we'll ensure that we're overweight that sector. Um, and then what we do is as we go across the portfolio, we will know that there are sectors that have headwinds. But within those sectors, we think there's always a stock or two that should be able to absorb or actually kind of work their way through a headwind. And we try to pick a few of those stocks to provide a barbell or a balance to the portfolio to make sure that if our macro feed is wrong, mm -hmm. we have that protection or that hedging. Um, and to date, it's worked pretty well. Uh, and we're pleased with that process. And it's constantly evolving because I think we can, you know, most fund managers in Australia can tell you everything about every stock in the market. That's not that's not hard. You know, we get the same access as most fund managers, but it's the way that you input uh, and the way you, you kind of execute on that process. And for us, that, that macro followed by the micro around stock selection. And that last element, the catalyst, or what we call flow and sentiment, um, that's the last little pillar, which is a little bit of market knowledge, a bit of market feel, ensuring that, you know what, understanding where market flow is the incremental dollar coming to Australia from uh, large global long earnings. Is it uh, hedge funds driving it? Uh, is asset allocation going in and out of equities into particular stocks? 
Um, you know, do you know, how far through a company's buyback are they? Is there, a, you know, there's a myriad of little things that go into that, which kind of help dictate the weightings, and that kind of quite often changes our our intraday weightings, intra-week weightings, intra-month weightings to ensure that we capture as much alpha as we can. And we take pride. We'll pick up pennies. And like, you know, people go, I know you only pick up dollars. No, we'll pick up dollars and pennies. There's no harm in that because our job, first and foremost, is to make money for our shareholders. Um, and we unashamedly do that. Is the current global banking crisis an example of the type of catalyst you would use? Yeah, look, that's that's a tricky one because... It's happened. The speed of information is getting quicker and quicker, so you need to be nimble and think on your feet as it comes up. So, yeah, look what what we did on the day is we probably reduced our banking um, sector overweight even more than we previously were, uh, and yeah, real time we're decreasing a little bit um, because you've had a, a five to eight percent shift. Uh, but other sectors have been affected equally. So what we'll try to do is to find out which sectors, and you know, we'll go back to that process. All right. The world has changed. You know how much of that rate dynamic is because people are covering positions. How much of it is real uh, prediction around rate the, the forward curve? Uh, how many? How much of these are 120 bits coming out of the curve real versus how much of it is just covering? Um, and then we go back to our process to work out right. How do we want to be positioned? You know, does this change the way that we think about the consumer? Because for the better part of six months, we thought the consumer was going to be in big trouble as. Um, you know, fixed mortgages start to roll off and um, you know, job cuts start permeating through the market. We thought the consumer was in some big trouble this year and our portfolio has pretty much no exposure to the Australian consumer. Um, if this is the end of the rate hiking cycle and um, you know, potentially a cutting cycle, does that change our perception on the consumer? To date, it hasn't. Uh, we still think there's probably... You know, three or four months, three or four more months of pain to come through um, until you see the full effect of um, last year, last year's and this year's uh, rate hikes to come through and permeate through the market. Um, job losses are starting to take place today, um, and as we know historically, the first couple rate cuts uh, into a new cycle, equity markets sell off. So we're not quite there yet from a consumer standpoint, uh, but it's certainly something that's starting to pop up a little bit more now, right? With these beaten down sectors, uh, let's use uh, consumer sector. Does it provide an opportunity to to buy a company that can hoover up market share in a sector that's distressed like this? Yeah. So, yeah, if we're going to call out a standout that we're looking at, it's JB Hi-Fi. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone needs to buy another TV. I don't think anyone needs to buy a, a new computer, but they somehow managed to extract it out of you. Um, so. They will win share. Um, the smaller players, the online guys that have relied on that free money over the years probably dissipate. Their ability to hold inventory, their ability to serve the customer probably differentiates them ever, even further. So perhaps this is a kind of example of a stock where we know there's still headwinds, but potentially its own tailwinds, its own micro drivers will allow us to own it to offset those macro headwinds. So that's you know, a stock that we're looking at. Another one is probably a Domino's. Um, it's been beaten up. It was uh, everyone wanted to own it at 150 bucks, and nobody wants to touch it at 46 or 47, wherever it is at the moment. Um, you know, the full effects of inflation are, are priced in into perpetuity. Um, yeah, they made a mistake when it came to their pricing strategy around delivery. 
Again, are they do they have the ability or the management capability to kind of turn that ship around? I wouldn't call it a big ship. I'd probably call it a medium ship. So yeah, they could, but how long it takes, who knows? But this is a quality franchise that we know that in three or four years' time, it's probably going to be trading significantly higher than where it is. So do we wear two or three months more pain? Potentially there's another downgrade to go. Um, does that mean we probably get a position, get halfway to where we need to be? And if there's another downgrade, then we go full tilt? Perhaps. That's kind of the, you know, and then. And, and that's just a, that's just a judgment call? That's just a judgment call and, and remaining nimble and assessing the situation because sometimes you do need to go early and, yeah, the you know, if, if you're if you're managing a hundred dollars, and no, you can go on the day. But if you're managing a billion or two billion, or in some instances, some of the big managers they they're they're managing tens of billions, you sometimes have to go against the tide. And we we don't mind being contrarian. Um, and quite often, you make the most money from our macro processes when we go on contrarian. And sometimes you need to pick identify these stocks and go a little bit early. So builders, for example, James Hardy's. You know, that is a market-leading franchise. Um, it's best in class. There's been a change in management year and housing is slowing down in America, but it's not forever. Um, and the market's multiple that they put on it. Maybe the earnings are 20% wrong still, but being on 11-time multiple, um, you know, this thing trade should trade on 13, 14, 15 times. So you're probably getting paid to wait still. Um, so, yeah, these are the kind of daily debates that we have in the team and trying to identify which way we start to pivot. And, you know, and then the other side of the equation is which one of the stocks have done really well, like a, a Woolworths. When do we start trimming that one? Well, these are the debates that we have in real time. <laughs> you were saying offline that you also like to view the market in phases um, and you invest accordingly. What are those phases? Which phase are we in now? Um, and yeah, how do you invest through those fa different phases? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question because sometimes phases interact, <laughs> and we're in one of those phases where you've kind of it's it's interacting. So we thought we were in a really defensive phase where earning certainty and quality was dominating, and then you throw in what we're seeing from a banking crisis, and it even actually makes that even more heightened. That you need to have that earning certainty. You need to really go through your portfolio and ensure that you have the right stocks that will be able to withstand what's the topic of the day. And right now it's access to funding. So if that company in the portfolio has a lot of debt, we need to go through and actually map that out and understand, will they be able to roll it? Will they need to raise capital to pay it down? What is their way to actually navigate? What does the earnings profile look for? So when that's the, if, the, if our macro process tells us, hey, this is a concern, then we really map and focus on the portfolio from that standpoint. You know, there's other phases where we know we're going through growth, <laughs> typically mid-cycle, where people are more willing to pay for, um, uh, they're more willing to pay for those more opportunistic, more uh, entrepreneurial companies in the ASX call it. So you need to be conscious of that phase. And when that phase is taking place, then momentum takes over. So it's more momentum investing where, you know, you know that sometimes it feels wrong and you know that the valuation is not quite right. But you need to ride that momentum. Um, you know, so that's you got defensive phases, you got momentum phases, and there's other phases where cash is king, where, where it's purely risk off, and you need to be really, really aware of that. So, again, it all stems from our our, our top down, bottom up, and ensure that we're capturing uh, inflection points, and that's something that we like to talk about. Um, there's been a lot of inflection points over the last three to four years, and typically around rates, or be it when we first started Brexit or uh, Donald Trump, whatever it might be, it actually really affects the way that you construct a portfolio. Can and you see the inflection points coming in advance or do you only 
known inflection points here when you reach it? Yeah, like you, you never know exactly what it's going to be, but typically market valuations tell you that uncertainty is on its way. And that's when you start to, you know, there's exuberant, exuberance in the market where people just start going ballistic and buying everything. You don't even think about the other side of the equation. That tells you to be wary. Now, that last 10% quite often hurts because you underweight a lot of stocks and you've got to go to hot stick to your metal. Um, because if you, if you hold true to your process and say, right, this has got all wrong and you kind of pare your risk down, broaden the portfolio and get ready for it, um, you get rewarded very quickly. So it's, it's kind of painful waiting for these inflection points for, for months, uh, two, three months. Uh, that's probably your tolerance level. It's probably three months given that, uh, how, how we all get judged in this industry. But if you can kind of ride out that, that, that pain period, and we kind of saw that in, in September, in, in December and January, you kind of stick to your knitting and go, right, I'm not going to play this game. It's got too far. You go to quality, you get rewarded pretty quickly. And we saw that in February and March. All right, so I'm going to hold you to it. Yeah. What phase are we in now? And yeah. what inflection, sort of inflection, are you looking for? Yeah, look, defensive quality is the phase right now. Um, I think the risks that are mounting uh, tells you that you need to be cautious. Valuations are still stretched. Uh, and I think reality is we could, I'm not going to call this a GFC because it's not, it's very different to that because we are seeing a banking crisis, but it's driven from confidence. And I suspect this is probably more a slow motion uh, correction where uh, we will see a grind and a shift down. Um, you know, we, we offline, we spoke about the, the tech sector, access to funding and access to capital is significantly going to change. Uh, I think that liquidity that was the, the QE that everyone talked about, this isn't a QE because that, the money that's being injected from central banks is a backstop. It's not actually going to our pockets. So I think the mistake that a lot of people might make is that think we're going to go into an easing cycle again. I don't think so. I think that, that money is going to be used to backstop and provide insurance to ensure that the, the plumbing of the, of, of the global, global financial system stays intact as opposed to accelerating and stimulating what we saw from COVID. So I think we need to be not make the mistake of, you know, buy anything at any valuation. I think that could come, but I think that will correct rather quickly. And I think it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be borne out really quick. I think it's going to be stretched out for the next month or two. Because uh, I think the full impacts of what's happening between UBS and Credit Suisse and first uh, the Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, I think those issues are going to stem out a little bit longer. Uh, we still have more inflation and rate pain to come, even though the the, 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 the discussion is going to shift away from those because everything we're seeing today is, is disinflationary. Uh, central banks are backward looking too. So we probably go one or two more rate cuts in the US, uh, rate hikes, I should say, in the US, and, and we saw the ECB still. Um, so I think there's a, uh, I think those levers will continue to go. And I think politically we haven't resolved um, uh, the, the, the fight for power globally. I think Russia, Russia, US, and, and China will still continue to go at each other. You said there that we're at a defensive quality yeah. point. Can you define defensive quality, uh, especially in the context of valuations, because a lot of defensive players are quite expensive? So for us, defensive means recurring, reliable earnings uh, with a management team that has the ability to offset inflationary pressures and ability to, to adjust to the, the market dynamic at the time, uh, a bulletproof balance sheet, um, and they're the market leader or they have a moat within their sector. So, you know, if you're going to call out, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pick on Woolies again. It's a defensive quality name. 
if you go to the infrastructure space, transurban. Yeah, they've got inflation-linked contracts. They've got yeah, they've got hedged balance sheet, uh, and it's a it's a fairly monopolistic asset. So these are the names that you kind of need your portfolio to kind of you know Rio Tinto and BHP. They have defensive earnings because you look at what China's doing. The triple R cuts over the weekend. They're going to hit their their growth targets. So we're comfortable owning those uh, those stocks in this backdrop. Um, and you go through the other sectors and you go right. What what they're not always they're not always the most expensive ones. So for example, at Dexus, uh, in in the property sector, it's got tier one assets. It's at a discount to its NTA. It's it, it did a convertible note not too long ago to shore up its balance sheet. It's doing asset sales. So for us, it's like you know, it's got great assets. It's at a discount, so you have that valuation support and that earnings. Although uh, people are questioning the office space for life, I think yeah, you know, it's at a valuation now where there is some fundamental support that even if things go uh, get worse from here. You have a backstop, and we like backstops. Yeah, you know, there's two ways we think. There's always two ways to make money, and I think the one way is that something with fantastic upside, and the other way is that something's got no downside. John, we usually finish these interviews with three favorite questions. Um, bit of a thought experiment. Question one: What's the one thing investors are getting wrong about today's market? I think we touched on politics. I think politics first, and I think, um, yeah, we're all becoming macro experts and shifting away from fundamental investing too. So you're not forgetting that the individual drivers of each stock. So you know, I think politics, uh, macro um, bias, and I think the other thing would be um, uh, probably inflation. I think that's going to hang around for a bit longer, even though. We said it was disinflationary. What's happening with the banking sector? Question two: uh, Could you share a story of a big win or a big loss in your investing career? What happened, and what did you learn from it? There's always, there's, there's plenty of losses. You, for some <laughs> reason, you always remember your losses a lot more than your wins. Um, okay, let's go. The win that I think we're as a team we're pretty proud of last year was Crown Casinos, where. It was pretty much out of vogue to invest in it, and at sub nine dollars, everyone had said it's all over. And yeah, there was certainly a lot of warts on the name. Um, we had around four and a half percent of our fund in that stock at an average price of let's call it nine dollars, just for argument's sake. And to have a takeover north of thirteen, we're pretty proud of that one because we stood in front of a, a firing squad, so to speak, and and got paid. Um, and that comes down to finding a stock with no downside. And that was an example where there was no downside, we thought, because it was backed by assets. It was a desirable um, license to control. These are these are integral parts of Australian tourism. So we kind of go, right, it was a bit of a no-brainer. And But at the time, it felt, it felt pretty bad to kind of own that one. Um, on the other side of the equation is probably um, – was Ramsey Healthcare actually kind of if I kind of think about last year's one? That's I'll just pick on one example. It's, just, it's stuck in my brain. Is we probably didn't listen to what the market was telling us, and that that third bucket of the way we go, you know, macro, micro, and, and flow and sentiment. That transaction between um, KKR when we had a fully pregnant position there, and when the deal fell over, we kind of felt really I'll say it, shit because. The, the share price should have told us and we should have known better that you know an $89 bid and the stocks were trading in the 70s told us there was a lot more deal risk than we thought. And when it fell over, it hurt um, because we kind of, one of the pillars that we pride ourselves on in particular was that sentiment of flow and we got that wrong. 
Um, we probably misunder, misappreciated the, the 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 duress that the business was under, um, from access to nurses and the recovery of COVID. And the last probably element that we misunderstood was access to capital that KKR and other private equity guys had to, because at that stage, um, credit markets were shut, and a thirty billion dollar check was an awfully big number. And uh, as it turns out, yeah, we got it wrong and it hurt. And Fortunately, it was uh, a year that we'd made a fair bit of money from Crown, so it kind of offset one another. Question three, and this question's purely hypothetical, but if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, what company would that be and why? I could give you the easy answers, but I'll give, I'll, I'll give the unfavorable one. Let's go Texas. Texas? Yeah, I just the death of the office is overblown. You're buying something at 30 to 40% down, so the discount to its NTA. It's got a funds management business, which is really good. It's got a really experienced management team. Uh, and I just think we'll fast forward four or five years' time and uh, it'll be back around that nine, 10 bucks level. And yeah, it's not going to double. I'm not going to make 100% of my money, but I'm, 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 I'm pretty confident that I could sleep at night and make 30% over the next few years. That'd be pretty good. That's it. I'm selling the house and buying Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Shifting for residential to office. Why not? <laughs> John, this has been a great chat. Thanks so much for coming on. We'd love to have you back on soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next time.